weaving is a grounding for me. It's a place I feel so comfortable, not just at the loom, but the process of weaving is how my brain works. And so I think it feels like home, like ground to me because it's a place to start. I can do anything once I'm there. I'm Zach Foster, and you're listening to Seamside, the show where we explore the inner work of textiles. And today we sit down with weaver Rachel McGinnis. Now, you may have heard this already, but the Nook is turning two years old real soon. And so to celebrate, I'm giving away two annual memberships, good for the entire year of 2024, to two people listening to the sound of my voice right now. I won't be sharing this giveaway anywhere else but here on Seamside, so seems to me your chances are pretty good. To enter to win the giveaway, there's a link in the show notes below. Drop over there to get your name in the hat, and you have until December 31st, 2023, to do that. Then I'll draw the winners on January 1st of the new year. The winners will get 12 months of quilty goodness. That's 12 different workshops hosted by visiting artists, 24 sewing circles hosted by me, along with countless other sewing circles nearly every day of the week hosted by other good folks on the Quilty Nook. Every day of the year, there's something happening over there. There's so much to love. I hope to see you there. Let's take a moment to look at a review from this week from Thyroid23! exclamation <laughs> point. I love that. They write, Each time I listen to Seamside, I learn something new and exciting. The various artists inspire me to be open to new ways of expressing creativity. Zach allows them so much time and space to share their ideas and habits slowly so we can picture them in our own mind's eye. Thyroid... That's what I'm trying to do here. Thank you for seeing that. I really do appreciate it. And hey, if you want to leave me a nice five-star review just like Thyroid, I sure would appreciate it. I ask every week, but it is the number one way for us to get Seamside to the top of the charts. So thank you for your help. Now, I first met Rachel McGinnis at Penland School of Arts and Crafts just north of Asheville, North Carolina. We had been in each other's digital orbits for a good while, and so when we finally got to sit down together in a couple plush armchairs, warm cups of coffee in our hands, fireplace in the dining hall, it was the most natural thing in the world just to slip into a warm, friendly conversation. Rachel's current work centers on weaving old, deconstructed quilt material into new pieces on her digital loom. After she spends days picking apart an old quilt, she often finds that it's the batting, the worn, lace-like quality of this batting, which is normally hidden from view, to be what especially captivates her. Rachel is also a dedicated, and as I think you'll hear in this conversation, gifted creative coach. It was fascinating to me to listen how she talks about the raw materials of quilts and the raw materials of our lives in similar terms. Her thesis is that because we know how to make a strong and beautiful thing like a quilt, then we must also inherently know how to make a strong and beautiful life. It's all the same stardust, after all. So in this seamside conversation, Rachel and I talk about how time changes both quilts and humans, how to do hard work with noble intention, and how we can mine our own creative processes to discover personal strategies for living the good life. I hope you enjoy How to Deconstruct with my good friend, 
Rachel McGinnis. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. Where are you at these days? Paint the picture for us a little bit. I am in my studio this morning in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. I kind of have two studios, one in town and one at home, and I'm in town this morning. And why are you in town? When do you come to this studio versus stay at home and work in your pajamas? <laughs> I'm in town kind of Monday through Friday. It's um, the space where I do a couple of things. I coach other artists in town where I have good internet. And then I also kind of have, so if you could see me right now, you would see that I have like shelves of quilts behind me. And so all of my studio supplies are in the studio White walls are in the studio, big table in the studio to work on. So it's kind of where I can go to be messy and also see the work I'm making. I know that when I came to visit you a few months back with our friend Alicia Mann, shout yeah. out to Alicia, that that was the first time that I'd seen your studio. And I was just so impressed with the quality of light. It's got this beautiful sunlight. Maybe we were there just the right time. I don't know, but it was absolutely gorgeous. No, you're spot on. And that is why I have this studio. And our house actually has a similar quality of light. And I've found that I think more than anything else, the quality of light is just vital to my well-being and my ability to be a human, a good human and an artist and all of that. Yeah. And I really want to dig into that with you because, you know, we all wear a lot of different hats in this world. One of the hats we wear, of course, is human being. Here we are, you and me, two humans. We're also artists, and you're also a coach. And so I would love to tap into all three of those hats, if not more, over the course of the next little bit together. How's that sound? Sounds perfect. Rachel, you and I met in person for the first time. I think we've been following each other online for a bit. But then when I was at Penland last January for winter residency, you very kindly came and had a you came to campus, had a cup of coffee with me. We sat there in the, in the dining hall and had a good chat. And then we had a follow-up studio visit on my way out of town mm -hmm. with Alicia. And I was just so impressed with listening to the way you're able to articulate your own process for yourself and for other people. And also the way you're able to tease out what's important for other people or help people tease out what's important for them. It seemed to me when I was there in your studio on that day that you have a very uncommon gift for putting words to things that are hard to put words for. Mm. And so I'm really um, looking forward to seeing where this conversation takes us and where we go. So Rachel, what are you working on in the studio these days? Well, I'm coming off of a solo show that just came down in Asheville, North Carolina. And that was a series of new weavings. So during COVID, I was really fortunate and I was able to purchase a used digital loom. So in 2019, eons ago, I really hit a wall in the studio and I had been making work. I had been working with quilts. I'd been working with paint and I just hit this, this breaking point. I don't know if it's middle age. I don't know if it's midlife crisis, but it felt like all of those things. And I just knew that I couldn't continue working in the way that I had. And I gave myself the gift of pausing. And, you know, my, my main profession was then and is now as a studio artist. So to give myself that space felt like a really big thing. I'd always pushed and pushed and pushed. 
before that, but I was breaking. And so I stopped and I allowed myself to set the paint aside and go back to the loom, which I hadn't really woven on in probably about 15 years. But it was definitely what I started on as an artist. I learned to weave in high school. So, but it was just a place I could go to, it sounds really cheesy, but find joy in in the making again, take the pressure off. And so in 2019, I set aside the paint, I set aside obligations and saying yes to lots of things. And I just let myself weave through stacks and stacks of old quilt tops that I had gathered from the previous work. And I got that digital loom and I was able to create a whole new series of work that was much more complex because of the way the weavings can be made from digital files. But I was working with the old quilts and all of those materials. So that show goes up. I'm pretty excited about it. There's some wild work in there. Bold in a way that I think I haven't quite touched on in the past in my work. I feel good about it. I feel in a way I haven't before. Just excited to keep making. Like the show itself almost felt like an afterthought. And I don't mean that in that it wasn't important to me, but it wasn't why I was making the work. That I was making the work because I really wanted to be making the work. And the show just happened to be happening. A very good motivating vector to yes. get it all done. Yeah. Yes. And so the show comes down and an opportunity comes up to do a commission. And I think it's important to say that I stopped doing commissions even before I stopped doing painted work, <laughs> the pressure was just too great for me. And so a very long answer to your question of where am I now? I am still working on the digital limb with that series of work, but then also taking on a commission of a painted piece. So Oof, let's get to that. I, I do have a question before we get to that, though, and that is, so you were painting 2019 comes... You hit that crux point and you're like, no more painting, let me weave. What was it do you feel now that you have a few years of perspective to look back on? What was it that weaving offered you in that moment that painting wasn't? Or what opened up for you with weaving that painting wasn't opening up for you? So I think my first, just a simple answer, it was a grounding. Weaving is a grounding for me. It's a place I feel so comfortable not just at the loom, but the process of weaving is something that it's how my brain works. It's how it functions. And so it, it just felt like home to me. What does that mean? It's how your brain works. It has a logic to it. So you can plan, right? You can, you can have intention, you can plan, but I've always, the way I weave is I, I put on a long warp. And I don't necessarily know what will result from that. So when I learned to weave, I always thought I'd want to be a production weaver. I thought that I really liked knowing what something will be. And I, I quickly found that I lose interest very fast if I know what a piece will look like. And so I think it feels like home, like ground to me because it's a place to start and there's a logic to it, but I can do anything once I'm there. 
Yeah, that makes sense to me as a quilter because I'm thinking of a time last spring when I was at Aramont in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. If anybody's ever been to Gatlinburg, it is a sight to behold. It is a treat. But it was also a lot of energy and it was overwhelming for me as a person. And so the project I planned to work on at Aramont was no longer the project that I had the energy to complete. Mm -hmm. I had a very different kind of energy. And my friend Amanda Nadig and I had recently been playing around with exploring this process of kind of this modular quilt assembly, which sounds funny because traditionally quilts are modular. I mean, think quilt blocks, but this is modular in the sense that it's you sew all your quilt top down to batting and then you eventually piece all those blocks together. Kind of like quilt as you go, kind of, for those that know the reference. But in this time at Gatlinburg, when I was just like swirling in the energy of of the town, I did not have within me the 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 wherewithal to make that project that I'd come to make. But I did have within me the power to pick up these like modular quilt units, these little baby bits, right? Mm-hmm. These just small pieces where I had to make very few decisions up front. I could just get to work almost immediately. And it sounds like when you're talking about putting on this long warp, you you make a few decisions in the beginning, but not too many, mm-hmm. just enough to get you started. And then you just open up to the process as, as you Absolutely. go through it. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And so now after a few years off, mm-hmm. you're entertaining a, another commission. Yeah. How's that feeling? You know, at first it was, honestly, my first response was absolutely no not go in there but it's a special it's a special work that the original piece that the commission is based off of so i was deconstructing quilts that were gifted to me your audience might know the term cutter quilts it it hurts this heart but yes i I think we're familiar (laughs) the ones you know with the holes and you cut out the good parts to make the teddy bears oh yeah and over the years i used to you know, look for those at Goodwill or eBay. And then over the years, people have just been gifting me quilts, which I appreciate. They're not all cutter quilts, though. I think that's important to say. We could have a whole conversation about that. But um, I made a piece in the past that actually was a quilt my mother had. She didn't make it, but she had held on to for years. And before she sent it to me, she cut out some sections to make pillows. So it came kind of in odd shape. And when I took it apart, the batting inside was like the thinnest paper thin, like lace is really what it felt like. And at that point, I was doing a lot of, I would paint the battings when they came out and then apply pattern and color and texture to them. And they'd be these wall hangings for the wall. And um, each quilt had its own personality you know it had these different characteristics and so it wasn't like I could ever again go in with a plan and be like oh I have these five quilts and here's what I'm gonna do I had to wait until I opened each of them up and kind of literally touched every inch of them to know what I would do with them and so this this one that came from my mom really was the thinnest batting I had ever experienced and I you know I had to very tenderly stitch into it to hold it together because you can imagine right there are these it's the batting and it's going to be hanging from the wall and so it has to be able to hold together and so I painted it and then I ended up gold leafing the entire batting and that kind of irregular shape that my mom had cut it to 
and the holes that have been worn into it over time, paired with this kind of tender gold leafing, just really created a piece that, that I don't often say this about the work that comes through my hands, but it's, it's exquisite. And um, a lot of people have have wanted that piece. And, you know, I've always just had to say it's it's not something I can repeat. It's it isn't right. And so I initially said no to this commission because, you know, I can't know that I'll find something that will work and you can't recreate all of those things to come together. And so I was taking apart a quilt, which I do on a regular basis um, to get the materials for weaving. And I came across a batting, not quite as thin as that one that was my mom's quilt, but it was a batting that they're just so beautiful the way the holes have worn into them. And they have a texture, this one that will just receive the gold leaves so beautifully. And so I turned around and I ended up saying, actually, I just found this batting and it would be perfect. So I surprised myself by saying no and then yes. I surprised myself by opening up again to that, the, the act of a commission, which for me adds a layer. I think it feels like pressure. I don't know that it needs to be, but there becomes an expectation on a work that doesn't always serve my process always another chef in the kitchen when you're doing a commission whether they're they could be fully supportive and give you the longest leash possible but it's a leash nonetheless isn't it yeah can you and let's let's continue down this track a little bit with your commission but what i'm really interested in this moment is very few of us have the kind of deep dive experience that you have with deconstructing quilts and seeing what the inside of a quilt can look like after decades and maybe even generations of use. Can you describe first a little bit about your process of deconstructing a quilt when you're going to weave it and then what you notice when you open one up? What do you see? What are some of the, in what ways are they variable from one to the next, right? How does, how does the years a quilt live affect the way it is shaped on the inside? It's always a discovery. Like I can think that I know what I'm going to find on the inside and I'm forever surprised. So I, I often come into the act of deconstruction with a purpose, right? Like now when I'm working at the loom, I have an image I've created that I know, you know, there's a certain vibe to it. There's certain content and meaning. And so certain quilts kind of speak to that piece more than others. So I go in with that intent, right? Like I want this quilt as material for this project. So I come in very like, okay, let's get this done, you know? And then the minute I start to unstitch the binding, it turns into a whole other experience. And I forget about my end intention for about, you know, anywhere from two days to a week to two weeks, depending on how long it takes. And I think the things over time that have really stood out first and foremost are the battings and and the way they have formed over time and so you know they start out as those pretty even sheets of cotton the older ones you definitely see the seeds of the cotton and they're a little more rough and bumpy but really no matter whether it's more of like a contemporary piece of cotton batting they turn into a web of holes 
no matter what. And that web, I just find so stunning. And so there's the batting, there's the thickness, there's the color. You often see where someone has patched different types of batting, like the truly resourceful quilts are very obvious. And I love them, I think, more than any of the other ones. And then the colors themselves, the front of the quilts will have faded significantly. So you could look in my stacks of quilts and there's so much pink, baby pink and baby blue. And when you flip those inside out, you see that there were deep reds and there were bold blues and there were emerald greens. And But so many of them have faded to those pastel colors we know so well. And I've found remnants of like newspaper fragments in the seams with how they would make the small patchwork using paper patterns. It's the different types of thread, the different types of stitches. I have, I have quilts that are machine sewn, so machine pieced and machine quilted, and then everything down to hand pieced, hand quilted. And so each one takes a different method of deconstruction. So, yeah, it's, I do really think of the act of deconstruction as a witnessing. And then for me, it's also a process of grieving. And it's, it's hard to take a quilt apart. It's easier when it's falling apart. <laughs> I always have permission from the people who have handed them to me. But that doesn't mean I've gotten permission from the original quilter or quilters, right? So there's definitely can be a bit of a roller coaster emotionally to work with a piece. So how do you square that for yourself? I think the biggest one is that the pieces that get handed to me are often they're sitting in a drawer. And they've been in that drawer for 30 years. Or they've been stashed in a box that someone knows is there, right? They know that someone dear to them made it, but they they do not have a purpose for it in their home. And it is still meaningful to them. And I trust, and I've verbally confirmed before, but I trust that they're handing it to me because they see something in my work that knows that I honor and appreciate and acknowledge and treasure those objects. So it's, there's a trust involved for me, a trust in myself and, and my caring for these objects and a trust. There's also a, a passion and a drive always to find something new and something known that is that is deeply important to me in, in my work and in our world that our way forward is by way of things that feel mundane and maybe unimportant, but that if we look deeply enough, we can find ways forward. We can find the materials we need to build the world. We have to build to fix the world. We have to fix. Cause we can only work with what we've got. Yeah. There's also a, piece too that I imagine at least as someone who looks at your work you're not just simply deconstructing these old quilts for the sake of just deconstructing them and tearing them apart and then throwing them away you are adding value to these quilts 
even through deconstruction, in your reconstruction, your re-envisioning of these materials. You're giving them an extra life that they would have never had in that drawer. I do think that's... Yeah, and what's really interesting in the, the work that's being that I'm making on the digital loom, it's become a compilation of quilts. So in the past, it was kind of one quilt becomes one work. And which was now, always, which was yeah. amazing to me in the studio when we came to visit that morning to see how a bed-sized quilt once woven really shrinks up to something more like I mean you tell me I'm I'm remembering maybe like 4 feet by 5 feet or something like that even smaller really mm-hmm. yeah I have one top quilt that and again it it depends on the quality of the material right like is it super thin did it thin out did it how much did it wear essentially it will compress more or less, but there's one, I actually think that almost like a full, like double quilt, queen quilt can almost become like a quilt square. So if you imagine like, I don't know, yard by yard, approximately. Transformation. And so what's come forward is I'm now looking at kind of my stash of quilts and looking for, I don't know, six eight quilts and how they work together and it's interesting because that that actually feels more like a painterly act than me whenever I used paint in the past that I'm I'm looking for color I'm looking at the value and the fading and the wear and the tear and how do those often very different patterns kind of play together so it's an act of intuition and feeling that is really lovely and it's changed how I think of the quilt as material as well. I think of it more as a collective voice in that I'm taking a bunch of objects now that each have their own personality and, and life and history and they're coming together through my hands and my mind and my loom to now speak in a new way. A chorus. Yeah, yeah. I just wrote down the term choral quilt. I I want to think about that one for a little while. Yeah. I recently redid, reorganized my entire studio. I mean, talking about deep clean. A lot of folks did this about a year into the pandemic. I probably should have done it then, but you know, whatever. What it could have, should have. So what I did was take all of my fabric, every scrap, every box, every whatever, dumped it in the middle of the living room floor at a massive heap. And I said, first sec, you're going to get rid of half of this. And by get rid of, I mean recycle. Um, You're going to recycle half of this because you don't need all this. But then to your point, I had previous to that, my previous system of organization was I was basically color sorting my fabrics, but then I had a special area for silks and a Mm -hmm. special area for wools and a special area for lace and this and this and this, right? Which means that while I was working and I'm like, oh, I need a little scrap of medium red right? I would just go to my color sort of drawers and I would never tap into all these other like special stashes that I mm-hmm. have set out for myself. So no more do I have special little boxes at the side. Everything is now lumped together, mm-hmm. right? So if you're red, you're going to be in my red box, mm-hmm. whether you're a silk, a wool, a lace, it doesn't matter, right? And I find that to your point of it being painterly, right? Like it was just a moment where I st- stepped back and looked at my own creative process and said, or, or realize that there was a way that I was turning a blind eye towards a lot of what I had in my stash. 
-hmm. And it just wasn't lined up. The way I had organized my stash wasn't lining up with the way that I worked with textiles. Yeah. And so I redid everything and it's been really cool to see how it's re-energized or, well, (laughs) it was never really flagging, but it, it has supported my process, right? The organizational system has now supported the process. And what I'm pulling now does become very, very interesting, those combinations. Yeah. So I can only imagine as you're pulling out these quilts that have, I mean, their entire stories and lifetimes in and of themselves, but then you put two or three or four or five quilts together mm-hmm. and you got a lot to work with. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And when I hear you say that, it just brings to mind how sometimes the depth of what we know can hinder us in a way, right? So, you know, you knew those were a special fiber. You knew that it was silk. You knew it was linen. And that's a beautiful thing to have that knowledge. And it's so vital. But how do we sometimes let that knowledge hinder the fluidity of how we work? And and I love that you were able to tune into that. And... And kind of reorient that movement. Well, it goes back to a comment from when our friend Coulter Fussell was here on the show a while back. And Coulter said, just because you're a beautiful piece of black velvet doesn't mean you're going in the yep. quilt. Yep. Right? Yep. yep. So Coulter in that moment is saying, yes, this very fine fabric, the fact that you're a luxurious fabric does not guarantee you a spot. But in my mind, I think what was happening was the the inverse of that, which was I was saving, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, the nice stuff for later, right? And so I like de-identifying to an extent the fiber content of the material and just seeing it as color and texture Mm -hmm. and maybe pattern or print. Yeah, I mean, that just brings forward for me so much of my, I want to say learning of making in the studio and that the way materials, whether or not, right, they're a precious black velvet, but that they do take on, they have, they carry a weight with them and how that weight can be a block for our, our ability to make in the studio. And I remember when there was a period of time where I just had to remind my, I wasn't working with quilts yet. I was just working with yardage, but I'd have to just remind myself like, Rachel, it's just it's just a yard of cloth. Like, <laughs> this is not a big deal. <laughs> the worst thing that happens, the worst thing that happens is you cut it up and then you change your mind and you sew it back together again. Because yeah. guess what, Rachel? Yeah. We know how to sew. Exactly. exactly. We know how to reunite disparate pieces of fabric. Yeah. Something new and something known. I love that. When a piece of fabric becomes a block, let's pause with that one for a mm-hmm. moment. Because for me, like I mentioned a moment ago, if it's a very nice piece of fabric, I would squirrel it away in some little dark corner of my apartment and then never look at it again because it was that special. Mm-hmm. And I also think other kinds of really significant fabric to me is ones that carry some kind of memory or story or history mm-hmm. that feels very dear to me or important to me. But I almost, I don't feel the block with that when I think about my own work, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking through this with you for the first time, but yeah, it's so funny that the the assigned economic value of a fabric for me really can become a block, mm-hmm. but in a very different way when a cloth has history that makes it very singular and therefore in my mind, very valuable, that doesn't become a block. It becomes more of like 
a very rich invitation and entry point that I'm like eager to explore as opposed to, oh, let me make sure I get this just right. Right. Yeah, I think that's all I got to say. Yeah, I love that. And I think that that's a gift to hold it that way. Yeah, I almost imagining you like kind of in your mind knowing those kind of meaningful special pieces and like waiting for the time, the right time to go pick that piece up and look with it. But it's kind of waiting for the invitation versus feeling blocked. Exactly. Or like my friend Catherine's, uh, like my friend Catherine Greenwood Swanson says, so many of us have collected so much fabric over the course of our artistic careers that it can, it can be a psychological weight, just the amount of material that we have. But Catherine likes to encourage people to think of it not so much as hoarding, <laughs> you know, trigger, trigger warning there. Sorry about that. But not so much as hoarding as it is as stewarding, right? Yeah. That we can always choose to say, okay, I've held on to this long enough and I've kept it in good condition for somebody else and then pass it along. And that's okay. Yeah. When, let's stick with blocks for just another mm-hmm. moment because I know that one of the things that is so remarkable and so intriguing to me about you is your ability to sit with other people, hear them talk about their work, and then pull out helpful threads that they might not have been aware of, you know? I mean, I think for me personally, this is going to sound so, this is going on record. You came to visit, (laughs) you came to visit me at the textile studio at Penland. Mm -hmm. And I was working on the like family piece at the moment, which is the reconstruction of the family burial ground in South Carolina, which is so fascinating to me as a family historian, because inside this walled cemetery that's now in the middle of a bunch of woods of course it would have been at one time in the middle of a field but inside the wall you see all these big fancy gravestones from my family members and then beside them you see these indentions in the ground sunken graves with just a raw uncut rock marking the head of each one and the person that had guided me back said oh those are probably we assume from the people they enslaved Right, and I buried them inside the wall. There's one injustice, of course, of, um, there are many injustices here, but one of the injustices, they didn't get a nice fancy headstone like my family did. They just got a rough rock. But then what really stuck with me more than anything was outside that wall, there were more sunken graves. So who got to choose which black folks got buried with the white family and which black folks got buried out on the other, beyond the pale, right? Mm-hmm. On the other side of the wall. So there's an injustice there, even in the afterlife. And so I was working on that piece. And then you came in and and I was working on a few different pieces at the time, but that was the main one. And you came in and you're like, when I think about your work, I think of text. And that's the part that's going to sound so obvious. I can't believe I'm putting it on record because I do work a lot with text. Obviously, I work a lot with text, but I hadn't considered myself before that moment an artist who uses a lot of text in their work, right? Like I just hadn't had that mirror. So thank you for that. Cause I thought about that offhanded comment that you made in our conversation then. And I just think, Oh, you got, you got a keen eye for the obvious maybe, but also for the subtle. Mm-hmm. So when you're, when you as a coach are working with people who are experiencing, well, let me put it to you this way. When people come to you mm-hmm. looking for coaching services, what do you find is going on? What are they looking for when they come to you? 
Well, what they say they're coming for and what they're actually coming for, there's there are layers there. So often what is kind of standing out in the forefront of their minds is, you know, marketing. Um, think very like, very logistical things. Um, like I should be better at this. I should be better at that. And when I hear that, I obviously I know that's important, but I'm always looking for the under layer. Like, well, what's getting in the way of those things feeling more easeful and feeling like you you've got this, you know? And so a big piece is confidence, having confidence and trust in who they are and how they see the world and how they see themselves. I think it's very common as an artist to be looking to others for the right way to do something. So, so much of the work I do with people is opening up who they are so that they, they really can see the full human they are and apply that to their work as an artist. Because anyone I think who's gone through an academic art experience, we're taught to separate the human from the artist in a way that, and I don't know that I'm saying that in a way that people would necessarily agree with, but we're not often taught to look at ourselves for how to do something. Like our quirky, authentic way of moving through the world plays out in all the different things we do and all the different roles we play. So I kind of think of a lot of my work as, as bringing that human back together and strengthened and emboldened to feel emboldened, empowered to walk through the world in their way. Because things become so much easier when we can do that. Life can throw the same challenges and it will throw the same challenges. But when we know the way we walk, it, it all becomes possible. Yeah, for me, it feels like in so many ways, my journey as an artist is ultimately one of just listening to that still small voice inside of me that says, this is how I do it and trying to honor that voice. And there's plenty of room in that conversation for being inspired by the work of other artists. And I mean, we're all in community. None of us are working in a vacuum, but then it comes down to a moment of quieting the noise and finding what's the little thing that you can do that no one else can do and making that thing. I was just recently t telling, uh, I was talking to my partner, God bless. I don't think he listens to this show so we can talk about it. <laughs> I was, I was recently talking to him about a piece I was working on. He's like, Oh, it's so literal. And he, he's a writer, you know, so he didn't mean mm -hmm. it as a, I think he probably did mean it in, in a kind of pejorative sense. But then I think that makes sense for you as a writer, but as someone who is, I'm going to say a folk artist in this case, mm -hmm. folk art is so often literal, right? Like it, mm -hmm. folk art is, needs to be easily digestible and it needs to be, the contours need to be bold. The mm -hmm. contours need to be one that conveys story. And so in the moment I was like, oh, literal, ouch. But then that little voice inside my head said, no, this is how it has to be. And so that process of choosing to honor that, even when other voices might be saying other things, right. is for me really the artist journey. I like, uh, you said in an interview that I was listening to you that you gave recently, you said, and I don't know if this is your definition of artist or what, but you said artists are people 
who are seeking to project themselves through whatever project they're working on. And I love that expansive idea for what an artist is. Mm. Anybody seeking to project themselves into the world through whatever project they're working on. Because that includes a lot more people than would, I think, traditionally call themselves artists. Sure. Yeah, I think of it a lot as being in touch with how we see the world and how we see connections. And yeah, seeking to visualize and share that way of seeing with other people. When someone comes to work with you, what is that process normally like? Because I haven't ever, I haven't worked with a coach before sure. in this way, right? Yeah. I've had therapy. God bless. Yeah. We all need a disinterested third party to listen to our personal problems. But I haven't worked with an artistic coach. So what does that normally look like if someone were interested? Yeah, so it's it's a process. And I think that's part of what I love about coaching is that it it mirrors the artistic process for me. So, you know, we come in having a sense for, for what the, the person, the artist wants to get to, right? Their goal, their intention. And we, we clarify that pretty well. And then we let go of that. And we uncover and we learn. And I say we learn because, of course, I'm getting to know that person but by way of the questions I pose, I think they're getting, they're learning about themselves as well. Part of my approach very much does tie to positive psychology in that I am look, I am feeling for, I am looking for where things are flowing, where things are working. It might not be right in the challenge they're in, there's a block there or there's a stuckness of some sort. But I'm trying to understand how they think, how they look, how they speak, and teach them, show them, share with them how to apply that knowledge they do have somewhere else in themselves to this challenge at hand. And with artists specifically, our creative processes are a wealth of knowledge and wisdom we find ourselves working in that way. Sometimes we take it for granted, right? Sometimes it's because we're the quirky individuals we are. It's all those things. But you can apply the way you, you work in the studio. You can apply that methodology to the problem. It could be a problem associated with finances. It could be a problem, right, associated with anything so far removed from what you consider to be an artistic act and that process you have honed and know so well can literally show you the way. And that experience, that one-on-one -on -one experience of diving deep with someone at that level is a profound, such a profound and meaningful experience for me. I think connection for me is just like the most important thing on this planet. And so when I can sit down with someone and talk straight for an hour, hour and a half about who they are and what they want and encourage them to really like be the full human they are. I can't think of more meaningful work. So it's a process. There's opening up the learning. There is the like facing real stuckness, real deep programming of how we've seen the world and and allowing me to be like, hey, 
but we could look at it this way. Um, so it's a lot of transforming and shifting, finding new perspective. That's, yeah, that's what we do as artists, right? Exactly. We transform. We transform. Yeah. We transform materials, which gives us the muscle to transform our lives. Yeah, and it's the process, like art. I think, at least for me and my experience as an artist, is I have to hold it loosely. And what I mean by that is I have to let the process unfold and not predetermine where we're going to get at the end of that hour or the end of that hour and a half. You have to be open and present to what, what reveals in the same way working with the material, you know, something I've always loved that Arnie Albers has, has written about is, is that conversation with the material, right? You can't dictate, you can't force it to be something that it's not. And I think, that that is such a key element, not only in our work as artists, but in our work as a coach. In our work as humans. Yes. Yes, absolutely. How has, how has being a creative coach backflowed into your own life, into your own creative practice? I imagine there's got to be some ways in which you see your own practice differently now after having worked with other people then you might not have understood it without having been a coach. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it goes, like most things, it, it goes both directions. So I wouldn't have become a coach if I hadn't worked through extreme profound struggle in my work as an artist and a human and general person in the world trying to make their way. Um, and my journey as a coach and the education as a coach helped me kind of unfold and see the patterns that are also at play in my work as an artist. So that notion of transformation, that notion of like loosely holding, um, I think I all, those were always present in my work, but I didn't have language for them. And really realizing that I believe the reason I get up in the morning and am excited to be alive is because I am forever enamored again at, at what something can become. And when I say that, I don't mean like the person, like seeing them as an object. I see them as like this immensely creative human being. And my goal is to open up the energy and the way that they can fully realize what they, what they need to realize, what they're driven to realize and like push all that other stuff away. Like, the naysaying and the like the doubt and other people's concerns and just trusting again in who they are. I'm wondering, Rachel, if you, I imagine as you're talking with all these different artists that there, there are certain ideas, suggestions, piece of advice that probably float to the top more often than others. Do you have like a, a big three that you find yourself saying a lot that, are just kind of universally helpful for artists to take into account? I think a couple, and, and some of them come, they've come out of my own coaching with artists and then also myself being coached by someone with me being an artist. And they've kind of, they morphed into one another. But first and foremost, that being an artist, that the job of you being an artist, one being an artist, is to do it your way, right? Like you actually aren't 
doing your job if you aren't doing it your way. And I think I've always known that. And now I know it to the core in a way that like, it's totally unrefutable. Like there is no path forward unless you're doing it your way. Another key piece is truly to have compassion for yourself and to allow yourself to not get it right every time. I actually think it's impossible to get it right every time. And if you add the weight of beating yourself up about it, you're, you can never get to where you want to be. And so that really touches on that notion of weight. I'm always looking at what, what's holding the person down with the situation. Like where is the weight coming in and how can we remove that weight so that they can catch breath and they, you know, can use that amazing brain of theirs and, and find a path forward. I think those are the really the key pieces. There, there are, of course, more, and they'll probably float to mind as we continue talking. No, I think that's great. I mean, the idea of just doing it your way. I felt like it took me 40 years to learn that little nugget right there. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning it, but yeah. I feel like I'm able to put it more into practice these days and at other times in my life. Rachel, if somebody were interested in exploring creative coaching with you, what would they need to know or what would you have them consider before reaching out? I think there's a couple of things that are important to know and, and lots of things that you don't have to know. So more than anything, I think tuning in to where you are and and what you're wanting or needing. And coaching is a process, right, that like an artistic process, it's got ups and downs. It's, it can be a challenge. It can also be a breath of fresh air. And usually it's all of those things in one session. And so I know coaching to be best for someone who's, who's really ready, right? They're ready to invest time and energy. That doesn't mean that your schedule is going to show that you have time and energy. So it's more of an internal assessment of where you are in regards to what you need right now. And so the way I like to phrase it is how hungry are you for this change or this tool or this movement forward? How ready, how ready are you? Because it's a, it's a relationship and we both have to show up to the table and we have to show up when we don't know what the outcome is. But by showing up, we will find it. You got to warp that bloom. Yep, exactly. See where it goes. Yep. We'll be sure to put your contact information in the show notes below in case people are interested in getting in touch with you. Rachel, this has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you for making time this morning. I'm wondering, as a way of just tying a bow on this conversation, what would your first pass at an answer to the question, how has working with textiles made you more human? What are some of your first thoughts when you think about that? My first thought connects directly to my weaving instructor in college. And something she taught me was that a mistake made in the weaving on the loom can always be fixed. And knowing that allowed me to have the confidence to try new things 
and to try bold things, whether that meant an insane number of threads on the loom or some crazy pattern or texture. I just always trusted that I could fix it if it wasn't right. And I think that that's a really just profound teaching for life in general. Quilters would say, it'll quilt out. It'll all quilt out. So if we're working with the quilt top and it's a little bit like wonky, it's got a little, um, what's the word? Surplus. I don't know. So if it's got a little bit of extra like fluff or Mm -hmm. too much fabric there, it'll quilt out. Yeah. It'll quilt out. Yeah. So I love that. Yeah. And I mean, that reminds me too, that like the work I am drawn to is the quirkier work, right? Where the edge has bumped out or there's a stain or there's so... To me, that is the quality of being human, right? Nothing is perfect. Nothing can be perfect. And it's more about embracing what is there and what has happened. So I think that connects to to a deeper piece for me that textiles remind us that I don't know whether it's beauty. I think that's been a word that has I've connected to a lot with textiles, but that over time with use something the textile becomes the human becomes more holistic more whole more beautiful more worn more ragged but with that right more authentic i'm always looking to work with the quirkier things and and the patterns and the colors that don't line up the last several quilts i've made have been really intensive handwork so much so that as i'm sewing into this quilt over and over and over again it is no longer laying flat, right? Mm-hmm. It'll take mm-hmm. on contours and shape. It gets its own body is the way I think of it. I just think that's, there was a time in my artistic practice where I would have tried to correct that and find a way to force that quilt flat. But I'm no longer in that point in my life where I want everything to have to meet some kind of specification other than, is this something that I'm proud to have made? Mm-hmm. And if so, check, we're done. Mm-hmm. We're moving on. Yeah, Yeah, beautiful. Rachel, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Zach. What'd I tell you? Isn't Rachel something? I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, before we meet again, make sure you put your name in the hat for that Seamside Nook giveaway. Two annual memberships are going to go to two lucky people. Might as well be you. Until then, take care, sew something good, and hope to see you around the nook.